As we go to prayer this morning, let me read from 1 Chronicles chapter 16, beginning at verse 8. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad, seek the Lord and his strength, seek his face continually. Father, this morning we do seek your face. Father, as we have read this morning in this passage, we give thanks to you. We call upon your name. We make known your deeds among the peoples, and we want to seek your face continually. And Lord, I pray that you will bless our study of your word this morning. You will instruct us. You will inspire us. You will enable us to live for you in the circle in which you've placed us, amongst the friends, the family, the co-workers, who, whoever's in our environment, Lord, that uh, we will truly glorify you amongst them, and they will be called to hear your word and to see the reality of your life live through each of us. Lord, bless the word as it's proclaimed in the service this morning in each class, and we'll give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. We're beginning the 22nd chapter of 2 Samuel. In the book of 2 Samuel, we have been looking at historical events involving the life of David. We have looked at his reign and, and the difficulties he had as well as the victories that he had. And now we come to a chapter that is not historical per se. 2 Samuel chapter 22. It is a psalm of deliverance. It was very possibly written near the end of his life, certainly after the bulk of his life and reign had been lived. And, and he was inspired. We always need to remember that the scripture is inspired by God. Even the genealogies were inspired by God. The praise of, of the Psalms we can more clearly understand as being inspired by God. But even the historical writings were inspired by God. It is all what God has caused men to write down concerning himself and what he did. And what we hear in this psalm is credit to the Lord for delivering David from his many enemies and from the many calamities that he faced during his long reign. Most, as we all know, most of David's poetry is found in the psalms. And so if we say, well, let's read a psalm of David, we turn naturally to the book of Psalms. But the writer of 2 Samuel was inspired by God to include this psalm within its historical context. By doing so, uh, the writer makes it very clear that David understood that all of his victories, all of his victories were given to him by God. They were won by the power of God, not by the might of his army, uh, not by uh, his brilliance and leadership. That, that's why, partly at least, why it was such a Sin for David, we haven't come to that place yet, but at the, towards the end of his life, when he called for a census, when the purpose of the census seemed to be to see how mighty he really was, you know. His might was in the Lord. No matter how many soldiers he could ra raise up or how many taxpayers he had, his, his might was only in the Lord. This hymn of praise that you find in Psalm 22 is virtually word for word repeated in Psalm 18. 
Its location in the book of Psalms is also significant because in, in Psalms, Psalm 18 comes logically after Psalm 17. But Psalm 17 is a prayer for deliverance and Psalm 18 is praise for deliverance. And so it's a logical order. In 2 Samuel, we've been reading about God's deliverance of David year after year after year. Even in the midst of his failure, God delivered him. And, and so it kind of is now summarized in this uh, 22nd chapter, which is a psalm of praise. Let's read the first seven verses of this chapter. And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of, his, of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You saved me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompassed me, torrents of destruction overwhelmed me, the cords of shell surrounded me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called upon the Lord, yes, I cried to my God. And from his temple he heard my voice, and my cry for help came to his ears." The first verse of this particular psalm makes it clear that it was originally spoken or chanted by David to the Lord as a praise offering, probably delivered, you know, uh, within the tabernacle precincts to God as a praise for all that God has done. In, in all probability, he wrote it first, and then he read it in a public setting before the Lord, most likely. This passage begins with David using several metaphors to characterize God as the Deliverer with a capital D. Metaphors such as rock and fortress, shield and horn. God was able to deliver David because he is a rock. Literally, the word there means a great, unassailable crag. And we're also told that he was a great fortress, a citadel. The picture that emerges from this as you, as you look into it is a massive, uh, is a structure of massive, impregnable, towering stone walls that no one can scale and no one can penetrate. Martin Luther wrote a song we all know so well, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And that's what David is saying here. A mighty fortress, a vast citadel, an unassailable crag. This is the God whom we serve. In verse 3, you find the word rock again, but it's a different word in Hebrew. It's not the same word. And it's interesting because otherwise, you know, to us it just sounds redundant. A rock, 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 you know. But here we're talking about a reference to a solid foundation. We're talking about a, a, a great gr a boulder in which maybe there, there are caves into which one can insert himself or herself 
to hide from, from the evil of the world. It's this word for rock that Moses used in that famous passage about which, of course, a song has been written. But let me, uh, let me turn back to it in Exodus chapter 33. You, you remember the scenario. Moses uh, was encountering God and Moses wanted to have a better understanding of God. So at the end of Exodus chapter 33, beginning at verse 20, but he, that is God, said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, the same word, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, the cave, the protected area, and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take my hand away, and you shall, you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. It's the same word that is being used here. So we, we can understand that God is not only this, this vast fortress that the enemy cannot assail, that the, 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 the ladders will not reach the top, the great stone catapults cannot penetrate the wall or go over the wall. It, it just stands impervious to all attacks of the evil one. And yet God is also the one who will take us and put us in the cleft, the cave, in, in the rock that he is. And David portrays him this way and understands him as his deliverer in that sense. Moses later used the rock metaphor to emphasize the, the unshakableness of God, that his foundation is absolutely sure. Let me read a couple of verses from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 and 4. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Right in the midst of, of his proclamation of greatness to God, he, pro, he, he literally shouts, the rock, and portrays God in that sense. And of course, to us today, in, in this world of, of shaky foundations and where you never know what's going to happen next, to have this solid rock to stand on, to, to hide in, to be behind, is a great encouragement and a great confidence for us all. David not only calls God a rock in these two senses of the word, but he refers to God as his shield. We, we mostly think of shields as in Star Trek. Are the shields up? You know, you can't see the shields, but they're you know, electronic or something. But we're, we're talking about the common shield that was used by the warrior in those days. <coughs> Generally speaking, the small, roughly round shield that was kept usually on the opposite arm from the striking hand, usually the left if you were right-handed. And, and you, you, with this shield, of course, you tried to block the blows of the enemy, the spear thrust, the sword strikes, arrows that might be flying in so that then you could wield your weapon with, with this protection in front of you. And so what he is saying here is that God is the one who protects us from the fiery darts of the wicked one. He's the one who protects us from the vile world in which we live as we... He is the horn of salvation. The word horn 
is frequently used in the scripture as a metaphor for strength, aggressive strength. We all know what horns are for. This isn't horn like in trumpet. This is horn like on head, you know, like antlers, like, like the great horns of the great animals that are used to attack, to assault. And probably there's, I mean, it's used all through the scripture, especially in the Old Testament. There's probably no uh, better description than in the 8th chapter of Daniel, and, and certainly you know this passage, but let me just uh, read it because horns are mentioned continuously through this passage. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westwards, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. So you see that the horns are an aggressive weapon, a, a, an offensive weapon used here. And while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him coming, uh, come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him, so he hurled himself, so he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. You know, that has a whole story behind it, of course, and it's later explained in that chapter that has to do with the Medo-Persian Empire, with the Persian Empire coming up last and being stronger. And, and then, of course, Alexander the Great coming across and, and destroying that empire. And he was the great horn that was broken off when he died for kingdom. The whole empire divided into four kingdoms. It, it worked out perfectly uh, in, in history. But the point is, you see, the, the horn is the aggressive weapon of the ram. It's the aggressive a weapon of the male goat here. And so God is our horn. He's, he's the one, our horn of salvation. The, he, he, he not only gives us a shield to defend ourselves, but he's the horn that, that carries out the victory on behalf of his people, on behalf of his kingdom. Because we find that God is a rock, a fortress, a shield, the horn of our salvation, he became our savior or deliverer. The word savior can be translated as deliverer being the same. Uh, David made it very specific that God was his savior from violence, his savior from his enemies. Although David may have been thinking primarily about physical violence and human enemies, I think we have every right to extend this into the spiritual realm because the spiritual warfare rages here and everywhere on this planet constantly whether there is actual physical war or not. Spiritual war is unceasing. Even in the Old Testament, it is crystal clear 
that God is not merely a temporal savior. He didn't just save David from this particular attack of an enemy. But more importantly, he is our eternal deliverer. And, and we see that in Old as well as in the New Testament. For example, in, in that wonderful prophecy of Isaiah, we read, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. There is no Savior besides me. Now, obviously, he's got to be talking about eternal Savior because you can have all kinds of human deliverers. You know, to some extent, Alexander the Great was a deliverer of Greeks who were under Medo-Persian rule. So, you know, he was a Savior of sorts. But there is no Savior, no eternal Savior, except Yahweh. In the New Testament, of course, we find passages that make it equally uh, clear. One of the most quoted is, of course, Acts 4.12 where Peter is, is testifying before the clan of the high priest in Jerusalem, and he says, there is salvation, there is deliverance in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. And, and what is so fascinating about this is, of course, both these passages, the Acts passage and the Isaiah passage, are not just talking about the here and the now. They're speaking of eternity. And what beyond that is so wonderful and, and uh, totally in accords, accordance with the rest of the Scripture is that if there is no Savior except Yahweh, okay, there's no Savior except Yahweh, and Peter tells us that there is no other name given under heaven amongst men whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see the equality there. If there is no Savior but Yahweh and Jesus is the name by which we must be saved, Jesus is Yahweh. Which, of course, totally pulls the carpet out from all the sects and uh, cults out there who want to tell us that Jesus is some kind of a lesser God, that, that Jesus had a twin brother named Satan, and, you know, all kinds of other things which have been made up by humans and have nothing to do with the eternal word of the living God. Yahweh and Jesus are one and the same person. Verse 4 of 2 Samuel chapter 22 is the theme verse of this powerful psalm where we read, I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Now, if you, if you understand the real uh, meaning here in, in the Hebrew, it literally reads, I continually call upon the name of Yahweh, who is the praised one, and I am continually delivered from my enemies. It's an ongoing day-by-day -day process. David is talking about daily communion with God, daily dependence upon God. We can't call upon God five years ago and expect that our calling upon Him five years ago still covers today. He was not alluding to some isolated moment in his past when he called upon God and, and you know, expected that to, it, it's kind of like the old jokes, it's not really funny, however, uh, where, you know, the wife asked 
to her husband, do you love me? And, and he says, well, you know, I told you when he got married, I loved you and it has not changed. So just forget it. You know, we, I love you and just, just understand that. It, it isn't something that, that can be only one time in a past. It's, it's got to be repeated in the sense of our dependence. I'm not talking about salvation now. Salvation is an event which occurs, but it is refreshed in us because we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So it is a refreshing thing that's got to keep happening in our lives and our daily communion, daily dependence upon God makes that salvation real and, and proves it to the world because as James tells us that if, you're, if your works don't, if you don't have the works, then you don't have the faith. There are no works, there's no faith because the faith has got to be the fountainhead of your works that will flow from it. The enemies that David referred to were not only the physical enemies like Saul and Goliath and the armies of the Philistines, but the principalities and powers behind those physical enemies. Satan and his minions are at war with the kingdom of God. We cannot say they were at war or they will be at war. They are at war constantly, every day, 24-7. You know, time means nothing to, to Satan and his minions in the sense that it means to us. Uh, he doesn't sleep either. And, and so they're at work all the time trying to destroy the kingdom of God. And you and I, if we have dared to call upon Christ as our Savior and to be born into the kingdom, we have bought into warfare. Whether we like it or not, we've joined the army of the kingdom. We must be prepared to join in battle because it's going to come whether we like it or not. And we can't negotiate with the enemy. He doesn't negotiate. He disattacks to destroy. However, we will be effective warriors only if we fight in the strength of our omnipotent king because he can't be defeated. He's already won the victory. As did David, we must continually call upon the name of Yahweh who is the praised one in order that we might be continuously saved, delivered. I don't mean saved in the sense of original born-again salvation, but saved in our walk and in our lives day by day to serve Him effectively. I mentioned this last time, and I, I don't want to beat it into the ground, but the world, the flesh, and the devil, what I like to call the unholy trinity, are arrayed against us. They are arrayed against us. And you and I have the difficulty of having a fifth column within us. That's our flesh. Our flesh gravitates, you may have noticed, gravitates towards the world, you know, and the things of evil. That's the way we naturally gravitate. I'm reminded of the old song that said, folks are dumb where I come from. They ain't had any learning, but they're happy as can be doing what comes naturally. Yeah, but what comes naturally is not godly. What comes naturally is worldly. To follow God is to go counter to the natural flow of, of humans. You probably know that, uh, in Taoism, uh, there is the Tao, the word, not Tao as in D-O-W, Jones, you know, that's the Tao we worship over here, but the, <laughs> the Tao of, uh, of, of China, T-A-O, uh, T's in China are dental, Tao, Taoism. Tao means the way, and Taoism is to find, try to learn how to go with the flow, to be in the way 
to find the forces that you can align yourself with. That's why all these people who go up on Mount Shasta and want to get you know all the forces aligned. You know that's that's a it's satanic. It's 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 part, it's Taoistic for one. You know the yin and the yang and all of these things, which which are uh, or originated with the evil one. And you know aligning yourself up and, and going. That's why in Taoism they they don't like education. They don't like government. They don't like you know it's kind of a it's it's almost a nihilistic philosophy where you've got to uh, uh, just just be live very very simple very very close to earth and just do what your urges want you to do you know kind of deal. That's natural to humans, but to obey the law of God is unnatural. And that's why we have to have the Spirit living within us. That's why God is our rock, our fortress, our shield, and our horn. Because without that, we're hopeless. We we can never. We can never do it. And so this unholy trinity cannot be defeated in fleshly efforts alone. I, you know, we've probably all tried it. We've, we've made a mess of things and we haven't really gotten it straight with the Lord. And yet we're trying to live righteously in our own strength. And you know it's a, it's a train wreck happening all the time. It just isn't going to happen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, we read these words. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. The strongholds of the evil one cannot be surmounted, they cannot be destroyed except by divine power. Fleshly power will not do it, because Satan is stronger than we are. But God, of course, is almighty. The weapons of spiritual warfare both offensive and defensive, are nowhere more clearly listed for us than in that passage that I hope hasn't been worn out for you because it is a crucial passage for us to keep referring to in Ephesians chapter 6. Let me, let me just uh, dare to um, read it again. Ephesians chapter 6, uh, beginning at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might, Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having, uh, having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded on your loins with truth, girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you are able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. None of the weapons or pieces of armor listed in this passage of Scripture is possessed by those who are outside the kingdom of God. None. 
those outside the kingdom of God do not have, you know, the helmet of salvation or feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. They don't have the sword of the spirit. They don't have the shield of faith. They have none of those things. They're totally defenseless against the evil one. There's not a thing that can be done. You can go to a psychologist from now to the end of your life and he tries to help you through all your little problems and they're never going to be healed because at the root is an unconverted heart. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is evil, it's desperately wicked and who can understand it? Not even the psychiatrist, not even Freud or any of those people. In fact, Freud <laughs> was probably more an author of evil than anything else. Uh, as far as understanding the basic reason we fail as, as people without God. And even those who are inside the kingdom do not automatically have the armor or the weapons. It isn't automatic. Oh, I'm, I'm saved, therefore I have all the armor and, and I have the weapons and I'm, I'm ready to fight. Because the scripture says, put on. That doesn't mean get saved. It's talking to people who are already saved. Put on the armor. That, that requires an act of the will. It doesn't happen by accident. Oh, I woke up one morning and I had the armor of God on, you know. It's an act of the will. It's an act of the will and we choose to be faithful in the study of the Word of God. We choose to be faithful in obeying the Word of God. We choose to be committed to a life of prayer. And I don't mean that you're down on your knees 24-7. I'm talking about, of course, where the attitude is every time we face an issue, the first place we go is to God, rather than saying, well, let's see, how can I deal with this problem? What does my management book say, you know, or whatever else? Ephesians 6.18 ends with a very interesting admonition. It says, be on the alert, alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, except for the days of Noah just before the great flood. There's never been a time when the people of God's kingdom have faced a greater need for spiritual alertness than it is this very day. There are 6.2 plus billion people in the world today. Far more than the world has ever known in its history. And with the multiplication of people, you have the multiplication of centers of evil power. The church is faced with overt and covert enemies that are massive in numbers, both inside and outside the church. You see this inside the church because churches that used to be out on the frontier preaching the gospel and winning men to Christ now are the churches that sit back in some cases and say, oh, well, you know, there's lots of ways to get to heaven. If you're a good Buddhist, you'll get there. If you're a good Muslim, you'll get there. I mean, let's don't get too bigoted about this whole thing. I mean, the same church. Not the same people, of course. So the enemies are both outside the church and they're inside the church. And of course, it's the inside enemies that are really more dangerous. And these can only be defeated by the power of God working through his people. There isn't any other way they can be defeated. Petition for all the saints is our obligation to pray for one another. And that's part of the reason we, we do this to pray for those that, uh, I mean, we're all on the front line, but in some places the front line happens to be a little hotter maybe than it is uh, in other places. Verses 5 to 7 of this Psalm of David, we find the, the deliverance of God is absolutely essential because the threat of physical and spiritual death 
constantly dogs our path. Oh, I know that you know, when, when you were a teenager, probably like most teenagers, the last thing you think about when you're 16 years old, for example, and just learning how to drive is death. Even though learning how to drive, you're much closer to death probably than ever before. But, but it does constantly dog our paths. And David describes death as a nearly overwhelming power. He says there, he uses terms like waves, waves overflowing, torrents, and by this he means a mighty flood water coming down, cords and snares reaching up, you know, like, like experienced by Jonah was in, inside the big fish and all the seaweed was wrapping, wrapping around his head and he knew he was, was dying. In other words, death is overpowering and entangling and only God can deliver us. Under the threat of death, of the, of the threat in David's day of passing into that little understood netherworld called Sheol, they didn't really understand what Sheol was all about. They had the term for that, that next life. Uh, David cried out. In the face of that, David cried out to the Lord for deliverance. And the scripture says, God delivered him. We, when we feel that physical or spiritual darkness is about to overwhelm us, we too can cry out to the Lord for deliverance, just as David did. In another famous psalm, the psalm that's almost always used at, at funerals, we, we discover in the words of David, it was written by David as well, uh, that the most important, important in component of God's deliverance is peace and comfort. Peace and comfort. That's the most important component. We read, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It's talking about peace and comfort in the midst. I mean, death is a threat. Spiritual death, physical death, whatever it is. As a true child of God, spiritual death will never be experienced by us. The scripture clearly teaches that the second death is reserved for those who have never become born-again believers in Jesus Christ. You can't have uh, spiritual death if you're a true child of God. But Satan is going to do his very best to come to you and to come to me and take away our assurance. He's done this in major communions of the church where today people who belong to two of the largest Christian communions say, well, I don't really know if I'm going to make it to heaven. I hope I'm good enough to get there, you know. I hope my merits are good enough and maybe I can take from some St. Boniface over here and add it to my list so I can make it. Well, maybe the worst comes to worst. I'll get to this in-between place. And, oh, you know, that, that is not what the Scripture teaches us. We have absolute hope absolute confidence that we are part of God's kingdom, not just here, but forever. But, but Satan is going to come along and accuse us of being unworthy. Oh, you dirty, rotten rat, look what you've done. You couldn't possibly be God's child. He's never going to let you into his, his kingdom. No, you know, he's not going to let us in because we're good enough. We never will be good enough. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, not us. And Dr. Walmark and I were talking about that just before class this morning. Hopelessness is one of Satan's main tools to destroy men and women all over the world. Why do so many people commit suicide? The primary motivation is hopelessness. There's no hope in this life, so they take their lives. 
hoping that maybe, you know, if, if there is a God that he'll take them in and everything will be okay, or hoping that maybe you just die like a dog and you're extinguished and gone and you may, you know, your, your pain is gone because you ceased to exist. But Satan's intimidation is rendered powerless. As we remember the words so aptly proclaimed in that old hymn, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. That's where our hope is. We don't trust in our righteousness, even though there are those who say we should. Oh, we should really work and try to do good, and maybe God will accept us. But we have to trust in the perfect righteousness of Jesus that has been imputed to our account. Imputed to our account. Placed there by God. You know, he, he took away our bankrupt status and wrote in this huge number, 17 jillion billion gazillion in, in our bank account. We couldn't spend it if we even tried. Physical death is faced by us all. The older we get, we more, the more we are, of course, aware of that. But if we're walking with the Lord in faith and striving to obey His words, His word, and, and we're committed to prayer, our death will not seem like overwhelming waves, torrents, snares dragging us down. It won't seem like that at all. Instead, it will be a wonderful passage out of this life into the next, a mere transition from a world of pain and sorrow to a world where we're told in the 21st chapter of Revelation, He will wipe away every tear and there shall no longer be any death, any mourning or crying or pain. At our death, we don't pass into some kind of a netherworld where we move around as some kind of a semi-comatose ghoul. But Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me what? Did he say, we'll be with me in, in, in some kind of nether world? You'll be with me in Sheol? You'll be with me in... No, he said, you'll be with me in paradise. 